morning, each and every one of you. I very much appreciate Jeff's comments this morning. As he mentioned to you, he called me yesterday and we talked a bit about GCA and who we are and what we do and how we do what we do. And we've been uh, a public church for 14 and a half years. And over the course of those years, we have weathered all kinds of storms and ups and downs, as any church does. And over the course of time, since this is the first time that we'd ever tried something like this, let's, let's open the doors, let's be a church, let's invite people in, let's do this. And because we did it without the help of the Southern Baptist Convention or any denomination or anyone, it really has been a learning and a growing experience as we've gone along. The ideal for any church, in my opinion, is that it has a combination of three things. It needs to have good sound teaching, good doctrine. It needs to have good body life, good fellowship among the saints that are part of the congregation. And it needs to have good worship. If you find all three of those in any church, then stay there. Stay at that church. But it is rare to find all three of those in any church. I have been in places that had lots of body life, but the doctrine wasn't good. The teaching wasn't great. I've been in places where the doctrine was just spot on, but the body life was not good. You know, the, the frozen chosen. It's just us and no more kind of group. And I've been in places where the worship was really good and emotional and heartfelt. And then, uh, you know, the doctrine just isn't there. And so trying to find that combination of all three is difficult. We have been striving toward that. I feel like we're pretty good on the doctrine thing. I feel pretty good about the teaching. If I said I didn't feel good about the teaching, that would be an indictment against myself. Yes, <laughs> Leon went... <laughs> So, yeah, that would feel weird. Uh, I think our body life is doing good. In fact, in talking to Jeff yesterday, and, and then I did talk to Leon yesterday, and, and we were talking about it, and I said, you know, right now we're about as healthy as we've ever been in terms of body life. Not in terms of colds and flus, which are going around, but in terms of just getting along. We don't have any fights right now. Nobody's backbiting. Nobody's stabbing anybody in the back. There's just, there's no real political problems in our church right now. And I want to keep it that way. I'm so pleased with how everything is right now. I wish I could kind of bottle it up and keep it for later. Next time we have a problem, I could break that bottle out because we're just doing really well right now. And so that brings us to the question of worship. So let's talk about how GCA worships and what it means to worship here at GCA because oftentimes people equate in the contemporary church, the concept of worship with the concept of singing. Most churches will speak of their worship service as being the time when they're singing. They might even have a song leader who is referred to as the worship leader. And then they think of the preaching as a completely separate entity. In fact, I was at one of these big Nashville showbiz churches once where everybody was very enthused about the singing and, and the worship and all that. And then when the preacher started talking, everybody, like as a group, got up and went to the bathroom. It was like break time. 
Now, when the music started again, everybody came rushing back to their seat. Oh, good, we're back to worship. And so the word worship, the Greek word, proskuneo, we've talked about this before, literally means to kiss toward. The idea behind it being to show obeisance, to show reverence. And uh, in the New Testament, we see a couple different examples of that, like in Revelation 22, when John puts his face in the dust in front of an angel. And the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant like you are. Worship God. So that gives us some sense of what that worship was. It was prostrating himself in front of something in an act of you are superior, I am inferior to you, that kiss toward sense. But then we also read when Jesus dealt with the demoniac at the Gadarenes, we read that the demoniac who called himself legion because he was so many that when he saw Jesus, we read that the demons worshipped. And their form of worship was to beg to him What are you doing here? Recognizing his superiority and asking him, have you come to to cast us into the abyss before our time? They recognized his superiority and that was called worship. But in the New Testament, we're never given any sort of description of what a New Testament service in church looked like. We know that they met. We know that they got together. We know that they prayed. We read that. They prayed together. Good, we got that. We read sometimes that they sang a hymn, like when Jesus at the Last Supper, before they went out into the garden, they sang a hymn together, and Paul instructs that we're to sing songs, spiritual songs, and make melody from our hearts. Okay, so singing, got that. But the one consistent thing that Jesus did and that all the apostles do and that Paul emphasizes over and over again is preach the word. Preach the word. Jesus, everywhere he went, taught. Teaching, teaching, teaching. Paul raised up sound doctrine, even went so far as to say, if anybody teaches anything other than what I've taught you, let him be accursed. He was that adamant about the purity of the teaching. It has to be the sound doctrine. Writing to Timothy at the end of his life, Paul says, uh, preach the word. In season, out of season, rebuke, exhort. He was very clear about the fact that the emphasis had to be on preaching. So my thinking has always been that the essential form of worship for us collectively is the reading, the understanding, the studying, the teaching Of the word of God because that is consistent throughout the New Testament and so we're carrying that consistency in our church here does that make sense okay now having said that I have been to like when I go to conference I have been uh, in the midst of people who believe what we believe and teach what we teach and have a very good form of song and worship service and it has really been great it's really moved me and I've really been caught up in it emotionally and then I've come back here to GCA and on a couple of different occasions I have attempted to install that here almost like by force of will and any church any body of people takes on the character and the culture of the people that are in that group And I have discovered that you all, as a group, 
are just not hand-raising people. And <laughs> a few of you will occasionally, when you're singing, raise your hands, which I think is wonderful and great. And you certainly have the freedom to do that, the freedom to worship God according to your own conscience. But when we sing songs like, let us lift up holy hands and magnify his name and worship him, I have raised my hand in an attempt to get, and, and we're kind of quieter folk. And, and I think sometimes someone is afraid that if we do raise our hands that someone will go, oh, now they've gone all Pentecostal, look at them, you know, they're raising their hands. And, and, and so I have allowed, over the course of years, allowed the culture of GCA to kind of form itself and become itself. If you have a suggestion, if you think that we can improve how we do what we do, by all means, tell us. If you ever come away from a morning at GCA and you say, I liked the teaching, I liked this thing, I liked that thing, but I think there's something here lacking, as long as you keep that to yourself, what you think is lacking won't get fixed. You'll just walk around stewing about it. And then every week, when you don't see what it is you think is lacking, it will continue to mess with your mind and grind at you. And, and you'll start thinking, boy, they still don't have that. And then eventually, you'll go out the door looking for that. Uh, I'm asking you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. I am imploring you. If you think we can improve how we do what we do, come help us improve it rather than criticize us for not doing it. Does this make sense? Yes. Because I think we have shown over the course of 14 years that we uh, are perfectly willing to grow and we're perfectly willing to, to change. GCA today is very different than it was 14 years ago. How we do what we do has grown up and matured, which I'm thankful for. But I think that's an ongoing process. Someday we will all be joined around the throne Someday we'll all be singing praises to God. Someday we'll find out what it is to worship in spirit and in truth. Someday I will be able to praise God without my depraved, weaselly, sinful little mind getting in the way every time I try to pray, every time I try to praise. Someday I will know what it is like, but between now and then, we are all collectively on this journey of learning about our God and learning how to be appropriate before our God. You had your hand up, Dawn. Strobe lights and smoke machines. That's your suggestion? Okay. Yes, Linda. I really appreciate the, the music and the musicians. Can I make one suggestion? Are we, are we doing that now or do you want to... Go ahead. We're here. Sometimes the tempo is a little slow for the words. Maybe that would get people... That's fair. But you know what? Here is what I do know. Here is what I have found out about music, music in the church. Because Tom and I met in California at a church where I started out playing drums and then I moved to piano and he was on guitar and pedal steel. And we had a six-piece band and we rocked out. And that was the culture of that church. And we would take hymns and rock them up and everything else. Right. So, okay, so we don't want that. Okay, we don't want to go that far. Okay. And then I moved out here from California, and I went to the church in Franklin, and every hymn was a funeral dirge. 
And it was like, oh, gosh, this is just so, ah, you know. Now, in the 14 years that we've been here, we've heard a lot of comments about the music because here's what I know. You can't please everybody. You just can't. And so I think questions of, like, tempo are kind of up to the song leader. And some songs are interpreted by the song leader, who feels like these lyrics need to be contemplative, and so we're going to slow it down. There are songs that I have always sung very up-tempo. In fact, uh, Tom and I, when I used to play piano all the time, Charlie be on the violin, and when we were practicing songs, we would play them so up-tempo that I would say, it's a polka, and we'd be saying, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> so The polka versions of hymns. There are some beautiful contemporary there are some beautiful contemporary songs. We should But you know what? As soon as we incorporate contemporary music, somebody will say, oh, I like the hymns. Oh, they've gone off from that. We had a fellow who played music here for us for a little while who started bringing in his own songs, which I thought, oh, fine. Oh, here's some other stuff. And people, of course, had an opinion. People objected. People, And so... We've had people who have come here with real deep southern gospel roots. And they think every song should be a gospel quartet. And they have said, we just don't like your music. So here's my answer. And I I don't mean for this to be harsh in any way. Because I do appreciate your comment and I appreciate that you made it. But when it comes to music, it's not for you. It's for God. There's only one audience in this room. And if you think of music as some kind of performance, which happens in too many churches that have smoke machines and strobe lights, the kind of church that Dawn would like us to be, when you you see those kinds of churches, the congregation becomes the audience. And the people on stage, on the platform, become the performers. That's not the way it should be. There is only one audience here when we sing. We sing to God. But I think, I think what, what he's talking about is that he has a song he wants to present to God. He wants to worship him with sacrifice. I get it. I get it. Right, yeah. and I think he also suggested it, and I think the rest of us ought to be. I agree. I didn't get to come to church. I turned on that thing this morning, the other day. I don't know when it was. You were singing a song I hadn't heard since I was seven years old. And you talk about being struck in the heart. I'm yes. sure nobody appreciated that song like I did. So you never get that. That's why we include the hymns on our MP3s that go out to the whole wide world. I get comments every week from people who say, thank you for the hymns. You never hear the hymns anymore. Thank you for those. But... We have done contemporary songs here before that I've liked very much. And so, yes, Wolf, if you can think of any, if you can suggest any, if they've got good, solid lyrics, if they're not Jesus is my boyfriend songs, then, then yeah, absolutely. Right. When we had the easel and, and those lyrics, we were incorporating more stuff. Some people in the room like it when we sing choruses and, and they're up-tempo and we clap along. Some people don't like that. Some people like it when we sing really contemplative slow songs. Some people don't like that. So the only way to solve that is to say, 
the music is for God. The music is, and by the way, the music and the hymns and the way that we construct our service is on purpose. I know that you're coming through the door from everything else in life and you've been driving and you're upset or maybe you and the wife have just been arguing or maybe, you know, you didn't get to eat this morning or maybe, you know, you've got all this head full of bees when you come through the door. And so the first couple of songs that we sing are up-tempo on purpose just to kind of give you that chance to kind of sit down and kind of, okay, we're, all right, oh, do I, am? are we clapping? Oh, I'm singing. Oh, okay, good, good. And then there's the scripture and prayer to start preparing your heart for the word. And then you'll notice that the next songs after that are usually more worshipful songs. And that's all on purpose. That's not a mistake. That's to help you make the transition from out there to in here. And then in the preaching of the word and in the teaching, we try to be reverent. We try to treat the word correctly. But then I have had people criticize me for my use of humor. Years ago, there was a preacher who said, you know, Jim is such a strong theologian, such a good theologian. And then his criticism was, but he's just not reverent enough. We like that. See? See, okay, so the, here's the difference in opinions. So let me explain. And the music thing, we, I don't think that we have a problem with trying to make it entertainment. This group here, I think, is on board. Where, right. You know, and I agree. helped us with that. I think we should maybe be allowed to uh, give some feedback to Jamie. And maybe just, you know, if, if people want some interesting, different kind of uh, lyrics, they could say, hey, I found this. this right. Bring it. There's Jamie's challenge. Bring it. And we have some solos here that just knock the ball out of the park. Yeah, and Jamie's very good at singing solos. But see, that's a culture thing, too. We have had, like, Carol or Jamie or other people, we've had trios sing and stuff, and people have said, well, that was too much like a performance. Because you can't please everybody. Let me explain the use of humor, just so you get it. My use of humor is very much on purpose. Keep us awake. To keep you awake. That is exactly... You're closer than you know. No. You don't want my input today. No, the humor is like punctuation. I don't mean to scare the visitors, but I preach for about an hour. And nobody can sit and listen to in-depth speech on any topic for an hour. And every once in a while, I know that you need to, like, back off it and go, okay, all right, here we go again. All right, good. And you get a chance to laugh and readjust in your chair and kind of, all right. And then we settle in again. And, in fact, if you listen to my messages and stuff, you'll notice that, that the humor moments hit, like, every 15, 20 minutes, you know. And, and it's on purpose. I can feel it. I'm not unconscious. I can tell as I'm teaching I can feel the motion, the vibe of the room, and I can tell when everybody in the room is kind of going, oh, I'm weary. And I'll give you a break. We'll, we'll lighten up for a few minutes and take some comments and everything. And then it's like, let's dig down again. This is all on purpose. This is all by design. It's not a question of reverence. It's a question of endurance. Does that make sense? An hour and a half could be, it, it, where, you know, for me, I just can't concentrate for that extent. Exactly right. And thank you for giving me an hour and a half. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, Dawn. In all seriousness, this has been um, in my mind for months. Um, what if we did some songs, sang some songs every once in a while? What? 
Oh, psalms. I thought you were saying the word songs. You said, what if we sang some songs once in a while? And Where's Dawn Ben? Somebody help Dawn. She's left us. Yeah, singing some psalms would be nice. In fact, did you not get an arrangement recently of a psalm that we could print up and hand out? I like that idea. But let me, let me now put a little responsibility back on you. Okay? Because you began by saying... This has been in my mind for months. See, there's the problem. If you walk around with something in your mind and you let it fester for months, and you didn't bother to come talk to Jamie about it? Well, I just figure it's just me submitting to what you provide, you know, and it's no big deal. Oh, so now it's my fault. (laughs) Oh, I see how this works. See, there's that irreverent humor thing we talked about. Yes, Gladys. Yeah. These are all viable options. We just have to collectively do it. Now, let me make one more comment, and we'll we'll get into the lesson for the morning. And I apologize to the visitors. I know this is family talk. You haven't been here, but this is us continuing to grow up as a group. While I was gone this week, while I was out of town this week, oh, and thank you to Micah, by the way, who did a very good job. Have you heard Micah's Wednesday night message? It's on the website. If you haven't heard it, go by and listen to Micah. Uh, I appreciate that I could ask Micah, you know, I have to be out of town, go take care of mom again. Are you willing to stand here? And he was, and uh, I trust him. I know that he's not going to say anything heretical. And he was concerned about, you know, I don't know if I have an hour's worth of material. And I said, doesn't matter. Tell the truth for 15 minutes and we're, we're happy. Just make sure it's the truth. That's the only prerequisite. So he did a good job. While I was out of town, Tom called me and said, Did you change the lock on the front door? You know, that front door, we had a lot of difficulty opening that door. And I said, no, I didn't do it. And so we didn't know who did it. Turns out, it was Josiah that came by one day and did it. I can't even begin to tell you how happy this makes me because for 14 years I've been saying, this is our building. And I have been asking everybody to take ownership. And someone did. I'm always so happy when that happens. And it does happen. And it's happening more and more frequently. And it does my pastor's heart so much good to see somebody go, oh, here's a need. I'm just going to fill it. No fanfare. No, this just has to happen. It'll happen. Just the same way as, you know, the bathroom sink for a while, the, the faucet was broken. And then you all came in one day and that sink was fixed because one person stepped up and did it. And that's the way this should be. You understand me again? Mm -hmm. So thank you, Josiah, for doing that. Apparently, Josiah is the only person with a key to the building now. (laughs) And and, uh, so turn to Matthew 23. So here's what's been going on as we've been working our way through Matthew. At this point in Matthew's gospel, the king of Israel has come to Jerusalem. And this particular journey to Jerusalem was very specific because along the way Jesus kept saying to his apostles and to his followers that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He was on his way to Jerusalem knowing full well that he was going to be turned over to the Jews 
He knew full well that he was going to die, and yet every time that he spoke of his death, he said, and I'll be back. I'm going to be gone for three days, and I'm going to be back. And yet they didn't believe, and yet they struggled with him telling them this, and he repeatedly kept taking them back to the Scripture, back to the Scripture, back to what we call the Old Testament, and saying, these are the things that are predicted of me. These things have to happen. These things are prophesied of me, and so these things have to come to pass. And they, because the Holy Spirit had not come yet, just really didn't understand it. Their expectation was that because he was the son of David, because he was the Messiah, their expectation was that he was going to set up the kingdom. Well, when he rode into Jerusalem, being the king of Israel, children cried out that he was the son of David, messianic terminology that identified him as the Messiah to come. And as they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, they set their clothing and they put palm branches in the streets as he rode in on a donkey that had never been ridden before, yet again fulfilling very specific scripture that said that that was the way that the king was going to come to Israel. And then he had to deal with the leaders in Israel. While the common people heard him gladly, the leaders in Israel resisted him. And of course they did. They had a vested interest in him being wrong. Because if he was indeed the Messiah, they're out of a job. If he was indeed the one that all the people were going to gather to, then they no longer had the political clout to get away with the things that they were getting away with the kinds of things that Jesus is about to condemn them for. And so they come at him one after another, and we've been reading how the, the Sadducees came after him, tried to confound him, and he would not be confounded by them. And so they come back again with the Herodians, and the Herodians go after him and ask him about taxes, and they still can't twist him or bind him up in his own words. And so when the Pharisees see that he's quieted the Sadducees and the Herodians, the Pharisees go at him, and Jesus after answering them, no one else would ask him any more questions because he was just too smart for them. And I used that as my basis a couple weeks ago to say Christians need to be smart. We need to know what we're doing. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We need to be intelligent in our Christianity. And that took us to chapter 23. Now, Chapter 23 is some of the harshest language that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. This is Jesus' absolute condemnation of these people, the Pharisees, the leaders in Jerusalem. Now, the leaders in Jerusalem, because they were, like I said, afraid to lose their power, afraid to lose their influence, because they were politically connected, not only did they resist Jesus, but they then would threaten anybody who followed after Jesus. You know that at this point in time, following Jesus was not called Christianity. It was simply known as the way. People who were following after Jesus and following after the way that he taught. Since he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. There were those who followed after the way. And the leaders in Jerusalem of course, holding all the power that they did would threaten people to keep them from following Jesus because once you aligned yourself with Jesus, you could be thrown out of the temple. If you were thrown out of the temple and you, for instance, uh, conducted trade or business in the temple, 
then this upsets your livelihood, that affects your family and lifestyle. And so they were able to throw people out of the temple. And so that's the melu into which Jesus is saying this. These men really were guilty of not only resisting Jesus, but of keeping others from coming to him. And so Jesus finally just unloads on them. And the language, like I said, is harsh. Chapter 23, verse 1. We read through these opening 12 verses at the end of last week. Let's look at them a little more closely. Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. All that means is they sit in the stead of Moses. They are the teachers of the law of Moses. And therefore, since they are teaching the things that Moses taught... And since they are teaching it to an audience that is still under the Old Covenant, who are under the Mosaic requirements, he can say to them, therefore, I tell you to do and observe. So to whatever degree they speak for Moses, to whatever degree they teach the law to you, you're responsible to do that. So do and observe what they say, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say but they do not do. And they tie up heavy loads, heavy burdens, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds in order to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels on their garments. What that means is they're showing off religiously. Spiritual one-upmanship. Their phylacteries were leather bands that had a pouch connected to them, and they would tie the leather band around their arm or around their forehead, symbolic of the fact that they had the word of God on their mind and in their hand, in their arms. So it was in their mind and it was in their actions. In those pockets, in those pouches, they would have verses, oftentimes verses of the Torah, and they wanted people to recognize that they were really religiously committed. And so they would, to use Jesus' term, broaden their phylacteries. They'd make them big and noticeable. And, wow, I am carrying the burden of God. Watch me go. And then they wore prayer shawls. And on the prayer shawls would be tassels. And they would use the tassels in order to count their prayers as they went across their tassels. And he says they lengthen their tassels. They make a big deal of, look at me work, look at me do the law, look at me into the word of God, look at me pray. Everything they do, they do to be seen of men. Jesus talked about them earlier as doing things like every time they would give a gift in the temple, they would blow a trumpet to make sure that people saw them giving their alms. And so Jesus, by contrast, would say, now when you do your alms, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Very, very different. But they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be noticed. And so when Jesus addressed this before, he said that because they were seen of men and because they wanted to be seen of men, therefore they had already received their reward. They already got what they wanted. They showed off in front of men. Men saw them showing off. Therefore, God is not going to respond to that or reward that in any way because they already got their reward. 
they got the very thing they were trying to get, which was, oh, look at me. That still exists in modern religion. It's not difficult to find spiritual show-offs. It's not difficult to find people who exercise their Christianity in a very public way in order to get people to look at them so that people will go, ooh, look at him. He seems very spiritual. He seems very religious. And so he says to them, they tie up heavy loads. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with even so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor in the banquets. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, and they love those respectful greetings in the marketplace, and they love being called by men rabbi. They like the fact that men lift them up and give them that place of honor. And, oh, I'm having a feast. Can you come to it? We'll give you the chief seat. We'll give you the place right up front at the head table where everybody can see you. And then they can collectively ooh and ah over you. And you'll look very religious. And they love all that stuff. So now Jesus says they love being called rabbi, rabboni, teacher. And he says, do not call anyone on earth teacher, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, you are all brothers. This is what happens when somebody engages in spiritual one-upmanship. They place themselves between you and God, so that you get the impression that the way that you get to God is through that person. There's only one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. And you don't need any other mediator. You don't need any other pope. You don't need any other preacher. You don't need any other father, confessor. What you need is Christ. He is the sufficient mediator, and you need the Spirit of God, who Jesus said is the Spirit of truth, and Jesus said that that Spirit of truth would guide and lead us into all truth. So you don't need rabbi if what if what you mean by that phrase is somebody who is lifted up, vaunted, exalted spiritually. Now, let me also say, within the church, Paul writes, that God has given gifts to the church. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So it's not that the church doesn't need teachers and doesn't need teaching. But Peter, in writing to the elders in the church, is very clear to say, don't lord it over the people of God. Don't use your position in order to become superior to other people. You're all brethren. You all have particular gifts. Again, this is Paul writing about the body. One's an ear and one's an eye and one's a foot and one's a hand. Everybody has particular gifting. Everybody has a particular place in the tapestry of God's church. But nobody is significantly better than anybody else. Here, I'll put it this way. Tom and I come out of a church in Los Angeles where when the pastor died, that ministry effectively just disappeared because he was the thing. People were attracted not so much to the word of God as they were to him. It was about him. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. In the course of the last 
well, it's not 2,000 years, let's say in round numbers 1,500 years since the early development of the Catholic Church and popes. In that time, there have been hundreds of popes, and every one of them died. And you know what happened next? They got a new pope, and they kept going, because no individual is all that important. To any religion, anywhere, no human individual should be that important, because all human beings die. But there is one teacher, there is one leader, who died and raised again and ever lives to make intercession for us. And that's the one you need. You don't need any other man. I'm 60 now. I won't be here that much longer. I mean, comparatively. Most of my life is behind me. I'm pretty clear about that. And you know what's going to happen when I die Nothing. The gospel is going to thrive. The gospel will go on. The church of Jesus Christ will be fine. Everything is going to continue because the church is built by Christ for Christ, through his spirit, by his power. And there is no individual man within the church who holds that authority. And so he says, don't reverence any person. You're all brothers. You're all family. Don't let anybody rise up and say, I'm the one. I'm the important one. And then he says, you have one teacher, and he's referring there to the Spirit of God, who will teach the church as a body, because then he moves on to verse 9 and says, and don't call anyone on earth your father, for you have one father, and that's God in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. He has described the Trinity there. You have a teacher, you have a father, you have a leader. By the Spirit of God, we'll all be taught through the Word of God. God will give some people the ability, the gifting to teach in order to expound the Word. But in the end, it's the Word that's important, not the person expounding it. And, by the way, no matter how much uh, language I use, no matter with what fluidity I speak, no matter what particular verbiage I choose to use, if the Spirit of God does not teach and inform and enlighten you, you're not going to understand anything I'm saying anyway. The Word of God is a spiritual matter. And if He doesn't open your eyes and open your ears, soften your heart, open your intellect to understand the things of God, you will walk out of here as ignorant as you walked in. It takes the Spirit of God to teach you, to encourage you, to exhort you, to govern your behavior. And as long as you have the Spirit of God, you're going to be okay. So don't be vaunting some man. Don't be lifting up any man. Don't make any man the important one because you have the Spirit of God. Don't call anybody father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leader, for you have one leader, and that is Christ And then by contrast, verse 11, he says, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. He has said this over and over and over again. When they came to him and said, who's going to be the greatest in heaven? He said, the one that serves. You have to be like a child, he said. And then he's going to give them the example. Coming up in a couple of chapters at the Last Supper, he's going to take off his robe and put a towel around himself and he's going to take the form of the lowest servant in the household and he's going to wash their filthy feet 
demonstrating what it is to be great through service. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's where we got to last week. That means that's the end of the introduction, and it's already a quarter to 12. See that? That was that humor moment that we see. Everybody gets to shuffle in their seat for a moment and get ready because we're going to dig in. But woe to you, scribes. Now, depending on the particular Bible you have, if your Bible translation includes headings, like I'm teaching from an NASB here, and in my NASB, there's a heading here that says seven woes. And then you read the chapter, and there's eight woes. And it's because one of the woes is actually a textual variant. We've talked about textual variants before. The earliest manuscripts don't include one of these woes. Actually, it's the second one that's missing in the earliest manuscripts, but is included in Mark and Luke in the earliest manuscripts. So it's completely biblical. These are words Jesus said. There's just some question about whether he said it in this particular context or not. These woes, I think, stand in contrast to the things that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in talking to the common people and saying, blessed are. And he described the various different forms of blessed people. Blessed are peacemakers and blessed are the meek. and Blessed are you when you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. And so he talked about the blessings, but then when he talked about the leaders within Jerusalem, Just the opposite. It's woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Now, we have lost the sense of what that means. We'll skip a meal and go, woe is me. Okay, maybe you don't. I say that. But the terminology of woe, especially when it's coming from the very incarnate Son of God, is scary. Because when he says woe, he's talking about outer darkness. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. He's talking Gehenna. He's talking hell. He's the one who's going to sit on the white throne. He's the one who's going to judge. So when he says, woe to you, as opposed to blessings to you, he's talking bad here. You are really in trouble. You are going to be judged. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and then right away calls him a name. Hypocrites. We talked a couple weeks ago about what the word hypocrite means, that it actually comes down to us from the form of Greek tragedies, but what it means in essence is, some of your expanded translations will say, actor on the stage of life. And that's a good translation because what it means is somebody who hides behind a mask, a falsehood, in order to make themselves look good, but then from that position of assumed goodness, they criticize everybody else. And so he has already said that the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses and they say Moses' things, but they don't do them. 
and so they then put a heavy burden on people that heavy burden of you better do and you didn't do and you're guilty and they judge and they determine and they do all that when they themselves are also guilty so rather than recognize that everybody's guilty and everybody needs a savior they put themselves in a position of authority and then they shout down on everybody else and so Jesus would say you are the very living definition of a hypocrite but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. This is what I mentioned earlier, that not only did they reject Christ, but then anybody who seemed to be following after the way they would oppress those people and drive them away from Christ. So the first thing Jesus brings up, the first essential element of their guilt, is that not only do they not believe and follow after Christ, not only do they not understand the scripture or the power of God, not only do they reject the king of Israel, but when they see anybody else who might follow after Jesus, they resist them as well. Now, in a moment, Jesus is really going to amp it up and say, and yet you'll, you'll compass land and sea. That's the King James language. You'll go across the sea. You'll go anywhere on the land to make one proselyte, to change one person to your way of thinking. And then after you've converted him, you've made him twice the child of hell you are. So Jesus is saying you are children of hell. By the way, He's saying this to religious people, which means to me that you can be really, really religious and bound for hell. In fact, you could even be called by Jesus a child of hell. Earlier, he said to them, you are of your father, the devil. So you do not enter in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, verse 14 is the textual variant that I mentioned. Somebody look up Mark 1240. Somebody else look up Luke 20, 47 for a moment. Mark 1240, Luke 20, 47. In those two places, you're going to find this same essential statement. Even though in the earliest manuscripts of the book of Matthew... Some of them don't have this particular phrase right here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. In other words, rather than caring for the widows, there are all kinds of rules in the Old Testament about widows and orphans. The widow and orphan rules have to do with tithing, in fact. The whole purpose for bringing the tents into the storehouse in Israel, the multiple storehouses, was not only so that the Levites that served in the temple, because they didn't have any land and so they couldn't farm and feed themselves, the tithes from the other 11 tribes were used in order to take care of and feed the Levites, but the widows and the orphans could also take advantage of the storehouses where the tithes went. And so God was very specific in taking care of true widows and genuine orphans. And he says, and what do you do? Rather than provide for the widows, you end up robbing from widows. 
you end up, the language is, devouring widows' houses. When you shouldn't be taking from them, you should be giving to them. You should be providing for them. And then, by contrast, even while for a pretense, you make long prayers. So, again, you're showing off. You're making yourself look really righteous and holy. You want everybody to see you. You love to stand up in the temple and pray, and everybody sees you with your big phylacteries and your long tassels, and you make a big production of your prayer. You may recall that earlier we read in Matthew, as Jesus was giving instruction in the model prayer, that he said things like, don't be like the Pharisees. They think they'll be heard for their much speaking. And he talks about not getting involved in vain repetition just so that your prayers go on and on and look long. And, and he says, here, this is what you do. At the same time that you want men to see you praying, you want men to look up to you and say how holy and righteous you are and what a great religious leader you are. In the same time, in the background, you're devouring widows' houses. So you look good on the outside, but inside, you're just wrong. And that makes you a hypocrite. So who's got the Mark passage for us? Has somebody got uh, Mark 12.40? I mentioned that in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew, that particular verse isn't there. However, it is something that Jesus did say because the earliest manuscripts do include what we're about to read from Mark 12.40. Who's got it? You got it, Tom? No, I got Luke. No, he's got Luke. Sure. Who's, you got it, Leon? Read it for us. It's the 40. Who devour widows' houses? Well, start at the verse before then. <laughs> and in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, various things, who devour widows' houses. Exactly. So this is a Jesus teaching. You've got Luke 20. I think we all know now as a group that you do. Yes. <laughs> Luke 20, verse 47. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So there's that exact phrase. Apparently an early copyist, knowing that phrase from Luke and from Mark, just by rote included it here. And then every other copy that was made from his copy continued to insert that there. This is a good insertion because it is still something that Jesus said, even if the earliest copies of Matthew don't have it. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one <coughs> proselyte, one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Could we get away with saying that? <laughs> Try that out sometime. <laughs> Ooh, tolerance, is that what you said? <laughs> it sounds a tad intolerant, yeah. It's remarkable that Jesus and Paul had no problem at all calling people out and saying, that's wrong, it's just wrong, you're just wrong, you're teaching wrong, you're saying the wrong things. What you're doing is wrong, but Jamie's right, 2,000 years later, the church is afraid to say that anything is absolute truth, That's right. and that we're forced societally to say that whatever anybody believes, you got to say, well, that's what they believe. Uh, okay. But according to Jesus, you can be so committed to your religion, 
You can have so much zeal that you are willing to travel distances, land and sea, to make one convert. And yet, despite your zeal, you could still be a child of hell who is converting them to your own hellish theology. And that exists, and that exists to this very day, especially when you do read Paul writing to the Galatians and saying, if anybody teaches you a different doctrine, if anybody brings you a different teaching about Christ, he even calls it another gospel. And it's a word that means different, not the same as, not commensurate with the real thing. He says, if anybody brings you that, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. It's a word that means burned for God's glory. He says, let that be the case for anybody who brings you something different than what the Bible says. Anybody heard any messages from any pulpits lately that don't say what the Bible says? Yeah. Is the church holding those people responsible for what they say? No. Why? Because people don't seem to know what the Bible says anymore, and they don't seem to care what the Bible says anymore. Because they want to go to church with dawn. They want smoke machines, and they want laser lights, and they want to be entertained, and they don't want to have to think, and they just want to have an emotional experience, and they don't want to know what is the sound doctrine, what's the hard stuff. One of the things that I just love about GCA small though we may be, is that for all these years, you all have allowed us to continue digging into the word, growing in grace as a result of growing in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can only do that by just concentrating on the word. What does the word say? What is the Bible about? And... Uh, I, I just don't know a whole lot of churches that have the kind of commitment and patience that we have here. So, so good. Uh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are hypocrites because you travel about on sea and land. You make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. Let me explain what's going on here. I had to read a few commentaries to kind of understand what this was about. Apparently, among the Pharisees, there was a, a practice that they had where they would swear oaths and make promises that they didn't intend to keep. And so they would say that particular types of oaths were more valuable than other types of oaths. So if all I did was swear by the temple and then I broke that oath, no big deal. But if I could get you to swear to me by the offering in the temple that's on the altar, on the temple, if I could get you to swear on that, then you've got to keep your oath to me. And so they were differentiating between oaths. And the point Jesus is going to make is, if you're swearing by any of that, it all belongs to God. So you're swearing by God, and therefore you are yet again hypocrites because you're swearing oaths and not keeping your word. You're liars. So that's what's happening here, you fools and you blind men. Which is more important, the gold 
or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, you say, well, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, then he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? The point that he's making is, this is all God's stuff. This is God's altar. This is God's offering. How are you going to say that one of those is more important than the other? Now he makes it clear Verse 21, and he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in the temple. It's God's temple. It's God's altar. It's God's offering. You can't differentiate and say, if I swear by this, then I got to keep. If I swear by this, then it doesn't count. Anything that you are using that belongs to God as surety to your oath, then you are making an oath before God. And therefore, you are required to keep that oath, says he. Whereas the Pharisees would say, well, you know, I didn't mean it because I didn't swear by something important. Whereas you swore by something important. So read through it again. Here's the argument, starting at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, then he is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you. So in other words, he's calling them out for their practices. Because again, even though they would teach Moses and even though they would look righteous and holy and even though they love to show off in front of men and even though they dressed themselves in a way where they looked especially righteous and holy and admirable. And even though they would make their long prayers and Jesus cut through all that and said, but what do you do? How are you living? How are you acting? What's going on in your heart? Then he gets into their tithes, verse 23, and he's going to say, you're so particular. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin. These are all little spices. Which means that they're in there. Imagine this. They're in there with a, a pile of spices and figuring out exactly how much 10% of it is. It's like counting granules. Okay, that would be one of those. One. He says, you're so particular. You tithe your mint, your dill, your cumin. And yet you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Remember, these are the people who would devour widows' houses. So he says, you have neglected things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. So you do the really religious stuff that outwardly you can do. You make a show of your religion and of your tithes. And I expect that whenever they brought those tithes in, they were fond of the trumpets and everything else. Look, here I go. I'm doing my sacrifice, my giving, my alms, my tithes. Look at me go. And yet Jesus says, the problem isn't your external behavior. The problem is what's going on in your heart. 
what's going on internally, you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done. The tithing part, it was required by Moses that all Israel tithe, and so you should have done that. But you should have done that without neglecting the other part. Now, let's just briefly talk about tithing for a moment. Because every advocate of systematic 10% tithing that I've ever read or heard will go to that verse we just read and say, see, Jesus taught tithing. Therefore, you should tithe. Because Jesus here said, this you ought to do. This you should have done. Every tithing advocate I know does that. There's just certain places they will go. They'll go to the end of the book of Malachi. And they'll say, you've robbed God. How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And then they'll say, and in the New Testament, Jesus himself said, and this you should have done. Neglecting the context entirely. But remember that he's talking to people that are under the law of Moses, who are under the old covenant. He hasn't been to the cross yet. The new covenant has not been enforced yet. And once the new covenant comes along, Paul says things like, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Which is the inverse of tithing. It's the exact opposite. Nowhere in the law does it say, oh, you decide. That's not in there anywhere. So, Once you get into the new covenant, even giving comes under the heading of grace. Under the law, every part of your life, including your giving, was under the restrictions of the law. Do it, do it, do it. Under the new covenant, we live by grace, we operate by grace, we give by grace. And so never let an advocate of systematic 10% tithing ever use that verse on you in order to get 10% of your paycheck because they're abusing the text. And by Paul's own standard, you should be running away from there. You should not be letting them impose that on your conscience. You got it? Got it. Okay. I like the new covenant. I like that whole freedom thing. So here's his kind of summation in verse 24. Because they're so particular to do all the little finer details of the law. And they want so badly to be seen doing all the little details of the law. And yet, they allow all this sin. They allow all these things that that should have been cared for. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And the devouring of widows' houses. These kind of things. And so he says... You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. Which is Jesus being sarcastic. I think it's one of my more godly qualities. It comes to me so naturally. I speak fluent sarcasm. Jesus here says, this is what you're like. If there was a gnat in your food, you would strain it out. During the summer at my house, we had ants. I don't mean like ants and uncles. I mean like ants in the kitchen. And we did everything we could to get rid of the ants, spraying and different things. Oh, we tried everything, didn't we, James? Mm-hmm. Oh, we tried everything. And we tried straining gnats from our own house. So. And we did. And then there was that period of time when the gnats came in. Gnats around your head just drive you crazy. 
We made a little Tupperware bowl with, with uh, saran wrap on the top with little holes poked in it and white vinegar inside that would attract the gnats and they'd go inside and they couldn't get back out. We, I mean, we, we were busily straining away every ant and every gnat, just anything we could do. And still, one morning I, I had my orange juice and my breakfast and I picked up my juice to drink it and there was an ant doing a backstroke across the, the skim of the top of my orange juice. Part of me kind of admired it. I was like, look at you go. You know, like, why aren't you drowning? And he was like, I'm going. And, and I strained him out because I didn't need the extra protein. I, I took the time to strain him out. And as soon as I did, I thought of this verse because Jesus said, you're so careful to strain out every tiny little gnat. And at the same time, you're swallowing camels. And I think he was creating the contrast to say, you're enduring, you're allowing the big problems. And you don't see it because you're so busy concentrating on exactly 10% of every little mint and cumin. You're so busy making sure that you do every little detail to look good. And in the meantime, there are these great big problems that you don't even see, that you're not addressing, that you're not responding to. And Jesus calls them on it and says, you're just hypocrites next week we'll pick up there and he's going to say you're like a a cup that's clean on the outside and he's going to say you're like a a grave that looks good on the outside and inside you're dead men's bones and all uncleanness and not happy with that he's going to call them a brood of vipers because here's the point this stuff is important the word of God is important. And once God gave his word, in this instance, in Jesus' time, we're talking about the word that constituted the Old Testament. Once he spoke to people through his prophets and through his chosen people, this was then important that they respond to it, that they pay attention to it, that they study it, that they live by it, that they properly teach it. It was really, really important. And the Pharisees' problem was that they got so busy in the stuff of religion that they forgot what the word actually said. And so they started filling the gaps with their own traditions, which is why Jesus said to them, by your traditions, you make void the word of God. And this happens so very frequently in the church to this very day, where people who don't know the word of God will then fill those gaps with all kinds of extra stuff, and the stuff becomes tradition. And next thing you know, the tradition becomes the religion. And it's not the word of God. God has spoken. God has spoken by his spirit. God has spoken by his prophets. God, in remarkable grace, has allowed us to handle his word, to read it, to study it, to teach it, and it's important. Jesus held people responsible who should have known it and didn't. And I think that's important. Paul held people responsible who should have known it and didn't. I think that's a clarion call to us. That we need to make sure that we really pay attention to what's going on in God's word. That we ingest it that we study it, that we live by it, 
that it becomes the standard for our lives. Then we can do what Jeff said. We can go out there and be a light. We can go be salt to the earth. We can go let that light shine because we believe and we know what we believe and we know why we believe it. And then we can do what Jesus did every time that Jesus was opposed. He responded with the word of God. And that's how we should live. When the critic comes, when the cynic comes, and he says, oh, you Christians. And that's the tone of voice he'll say it in. We have to be willing to just stand firm and say, yeah, but the word of God says. And the word of God is more valid than your opinion. Mm-hmm. You got that? Yeah. Amen. All right. I think we're done for the morning. Stick around and eat with us because there's a lot of food back there. Try the meatballs because they're sirloin meatballs. I don't know what else is back there. Apparently there's lamb back there. Ooh, I know. Would that constitute as sheep food? That's sheep food. Oh, nice. No, I think that's food that is sheep, I think is what that is. I think that's... Say goodbye to the internet people. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.